0: there is just this really underdeveloped understanding that we have every right to interrogate this and recontextualise these tropes and this, this canon of Australian literature is just as much ours to disrupt um, as it is the, the non-Aboriginal subject. You're listening to the Wheeler Centre Podcast.
1: Um, um, I'd like to first begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land, the Boon Wurrung and Wurundjeri peoples of the East Eastern Kulin Nation. I'd like to pay my respects to your continued care of the lands and waterways and for the privilege of living and working and gathering here this evening. I'd also like to acknowledge other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may be here this evening. And... Mm. Thank everyone for coming. This evening's event is presented in partnership with the Wheeler Centre and the Stella Prize. My name's Janine Lane, and I belong to the Wiradjuri peoples of southwestern New South Wales. Um, it's a pleasure and a privilege to be here tonight in conversation with Evelyn Araluen, most recent winner of the Stella Prize. Um, Evelyn is a poet. ...a researcher and co-editor of Overland Literary Journal. Her widely published criticism of fiction and poetry... ...have been awarded the Nakata Brophy Prize... Um, ...for Young Indigenous Writers... ...the Judith Wright Prize, Poetry Prize... Um, ...a Wheeler Centre Next Chapter Fellowship... ...and a Neil Sydney Literary Travel Fund grant. Born and raised in Darragh Country... ...she's a descendant of the Bundjalung Nation... Please make Evelyn welcome this evening. <laughs> okay, Mandangguru. So without further ado, Evelyn, I'd like to just start by um, opening with what sparked Drop Bear, What motivated and inspired this incredible
0: work? Thank you, Wala, and thank you, Auntie, for having this conversation with me and also extending the acknowledgement and respect that you pay to the Brunwurung Wurundjeri PSPLs of the Kulin Nation. Um, Yeah, I just want to also echo my honour for their custodianship and care for country. Um, It's upon their sovereignty that we are sitting today, and so I do just want to ground my, you know, whatever I say here today in that. So, yeah, Drop Bear um, came out of basically, I think, a pretty necessary absorption of Australian literature when I was going through the early stages of doing uh, my PhD at the University of Sydney, which, you know, for people who have some experience with that institution, it is absolutely a site of historic and ongoing colonial violence and also of some really... Um, very problematic workplace relations and that's being demonstrated today uh, with the continuing strikes there for staff appealing for their own uh, rights and dignity um, against the university. So I was there as a student um, researching... Contemporary landscape of contemporary of Aboriginal women's literature and writing, um, and really thinking as much as possible about my own place in that as uh, you know as a reader, not quite yet as a writer, um, but really more so just as somebody who is absorbing that culture, a culture that I myself was to a certain extent entangled in, um, as the book talks about in quite a lot of detail. I was raised on books uh, that, you know, absolutely were a part of a broader project of erasing Aboriginal people and histories from this land. And the thing that struck me as I was sort of undergoing a lot of this reading and research and then a, a kind of a broader participation in the Sydney poetry community and sort of some more aspects of the East poetry contemporary Australian um, uh, uh, community, literary and writing community. The main issue that I found was that you just had this prevailing sense that you could uh, that the white settler subject, the contemporary settler poet, could aesthetically recuperate and revive all of these tropes that had been used against us for so long. ...for their own kind of ironic linguistic play. And you would have things like special editions of Australian eco-poetic journals... ...that were themed on decolonisation but didn't have any Aboriginal contributors. Um, You know, I read this one work of experimental avant-garde poetry... ...that had a bush opera... Uh, in which a council of in, of dingo elders were presiding upon these these white subjects in in the bush and it was bizarre to me i honestly thought i was just missing something about this whole about this whole poetic culture in no. the same no 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 it's, it was it was so obviously Absurd and so obviously just absolutely taking advantage of an assumed lack of Aboriginal readership or accountability in these spaces, which is perhaps, I think, one of the most offensive things. The idea that the prevailing idea that Aboriginal people don't read and therefore settler texts don't need to be accountable to our representation. Yeah, the um, literature
1: of erasure, perhaps. The literature
0: yeah. of erasure, exactly. And Drop Bear kind of arose out of like I'll admit a lot of spite and a lot of fury coming from that. I didn't see the need to dignify it with close, detailed, sympathetic readings because it wasn't interested in extending that dignity Mm. to me. And, you know, and this was also the time that I was encountering Um, ...I was encountering critical black thought um, in this space and in this area. And while you hadn't written... ...I don't think you'd actually written stuff on on Radical Affrontery yet. No, that was the first time in relation to your book that I was practising. Yeah, Yeah, and that's something that... um, ...you know, like I would really like you to talk about that idea as well... ...because the idea that there was something productive... ...in speaking back to that as opposed to simply just erasing it, ignoring it... ...or the constant thing that we're told, which is that we need to be responsible... ...for creating new imaginative works to speak over that... ...and it needs to be our particular burden. But the work you were writing on Radical effrontery was actually really useful... ...in finding a place to write a book like Drop Bear that could speak back.
1: Mm. Uh, yeah, I reviewed the book and called it a radical affront to um, colonial settler literary and cultural history Um, and went on to say, yeah, as Evelyn did, nothing's achieved by being polite and Dropbear is blunt, biting and beautifully crafted and it is all those things, but it is much more than the sum of all those things. Um, It is a radical and timely affront to the history and myths and gossip and stereotypes that confront all the country's first people and their lasting and long long legacy. And the book Drop Bear uh, glares back at that capital H history through a First Nations poet's eye um, and staring back is actually quite central. ...to radical effrontery as an approach and as a way of writing. I also spoke about subtlety as an introduced legacy... ...that we cannot afford. Mm. Um, Not in the national picture anyway. Mm. Because subtlety along with white fragility... ...forms a set of settler behaviours that continue to shut down and erase truths... that. Evelyn's work speaks to and many stories of um, Aboriginal, um, her stories and histories and experiences. Words like theft, erasure, massacre, they're still fighting about those with the national curriculum for those following it. Um, And they're more than just words, they're ongoing structures that have been enacted. So these... Words like that are silenced in tr- in a truth-telling process... ...and they're needed to heal. But they keep running into settler sensibilities. Mm. And, you know, one of the other things that is... ...many things that is really impressive about that book... ...is the way it really speaks back to your deep and entangled... ...and really thoughtful interrogation of... Um, the Settler Canon and the Settler Archive. and Would you like to speak a bit more about that?
0: Yeah, and, and also it's constantly insanely flattering to have, have the, you talk about Drop F because it's, you know, just mind-blowing to have the level of detail if you're reading of it. Um, but... You know, like a lot of this project was born out of a really research-based practice. Like, of course, you know, it's poetry and I chose to write poetry for a multitude of reasons. I've spoken quite a lot about the way that I think that learning my great-grandfather's language did shift my understanding about poetry and poetic form and what possibilities that could open up. But, um, you know, there was a very real need, I felt, to speak to the legacies of Australia's settler-colonial literary canon. Um, a lot of the, the kind of the responses that seemed to me incredibly obvious, you know, like charting a lot of the tropes around the erasure and the essentially like the symbolic killing of Aboriginal people with the constant placing of Aboriginal bones and bodies and graves in the landscape, which is like a huge trope of Gothic fiction, Gothic fiction. Like there was a very little recognition that traced that um, that kind of you know um, linguistic and imaginative violence, traced that into the ongoing legacies. So when you have the kind of the, the the recuperation of these stories, whether it be like ironically or with new recontextualized adaptations, but you don't actually interrogate the central violence at the heart of a lot of this writing which is that it sought to make Aboriginal people ghosts in our own land Mm -hmm. so that they could more effectively clear that land for their own needs whether they be agricultural needs or whether they be imaginative requirements so that they can stage these narratives of triumph and heroism and then increasingly the more the more offensive ones, I think, actually the s- the stories, the kind of early twentieth um, century emphasis on stories of, um, uh, of of white children disappearing into the mm. bush. You see, there's a picnic at Hanging Rock, Dot and the Kangaroo, and you know we actually had a conversation years back yes. about this because I was really curious and I was asking I was asking a lot of Aboriginal people about their experiences with books like. Dot and the Kangaroo and, and Snuggle Pot and Cuddle Pie. And a lot of these were recirculated actually through mission schools because they were popularly, like, widely produced and fairly affordable. And I had
1: them as a child in yeah. the 60s read to me as well.
0: Yeah. And it is, you know, we had this conversation about this this very widespread um Aboriginal experience with a lot of these stories. It wasn't a unique experience that I had being raised in the nineties on these books. It had been happening all throughout the twentieth century. And the constant emphasis on this narrative that it that, you know, it was the little the the precious little white children disappearing in the bush became to me like a really sharp signifier of the way in which Australia wanted to create its own myths of victimisation, of suffering, to erase the violence that was being done to Aboriginal people at the time. So all of these stories were occurring at at a time in which the rates of Aboriginal child removal were horrendous and many of these records will never actually be restored if they were made at any particular point. But we can kind of trace some of that psychic guilt, I think, in the canon of Australian literature. We can see it in the colo- early Quite colonial. Quite a lot of it, actually. <laughs> Quite a lot of it, yeah. And, you know, it's not to say that this these kinds of, you know, acts of radical effrontery do justice to what has been done. They absolutely don't. But it's about making witness and creating something that does interrupt the dominance of those sorts of testimonies and at least make it harder for someone to restage a story like that, at least make it more difficult for someone to recuperate the, you know, the work of Banjo Patterson and, you know, to place that and centre that in the Australian canon again uninterrogated or the stories of Henry Lawson Um, Barbara Baton it wasn't simply actually just men on the frontier perpetuating these stories there were also women um there were also settler women convict women and and you know later affluent white women who were a part of the recirculation of these tropes you know like at the very least I wanted to make people focus on an actual kind of more honest um rendering of these of these canonical texts of Australian literature um, just, you know, placing them in this understanding of, like, no, there were many of these works were invested in a project, an active project of erasure, whether that be erasing us from the landscape, whether that be erasing us from any kind of, you know, legal civil rights or whether that be, you know, literally just erasing us from, you know, the whole colonial memory whatsoever. Yeah. We, were, we were not visible in these stories because we were not meant to exist in these narratives.
1: Yeah, so much to say about that too. But just striking me when you were talking, anyone who might be in any doubt about the legacy still of colonial literature and the fact that it is still very now, should um, check out what's happening in Nairagu country, the war about horses in the snowy Mountain, um, and the deep attachment to the poem by mm. Banjo Patterson. And the way it plays out in, in that um cultural
0: war Mm. um and also just before we go to the next get the next thing as well it is also you know like it does open up i think a space to really talk about the idea of what is actually possible when you think about you know aboriginal people as readers and taking up that you know taking up the master's tools and you talk about that you talk about that in the essay about Drop Bear but you talk about it like it's a long-standing interrogation in your work and I think it's really interesting that there is just this really underdeveloped understanding that we have every right to interrogate this and recontextualize these tropes and this, this canon of Australian literature is just as much ours to disrupt um, as it is the, the non-Aboriginal subject the or even, you know, like... Um, even non-white migrants as well we have inherited this nationalist culture and its literary texts and yet Mm -hmm. there's this kind of prevailing idea that we're meant to just write over that with our own with our own story you know like oh let's let's and move on from here and move on from here yeah
1: uh writing people tend to see writing as the great um liberator but it's also really important, in as Evelyn's saying, to think about writing as a great incarcerator, mm. and um, the things done here with the flick of a pen, and the images that it has left on the national psyche, um, and also having those books that you mentioned, mm. the children's books, was just you know it was it played a big part in. ...black women in particular trying to keep up a uh, an appearance... ...that they actually were being, you know, drawn into the national character. You get to keep your kids if you appear to be at least a good black person mm. reading these books. And um, so of course they are ours now to, um, to dismantle. Mm. And... Uh, yeah, you really take some deep kind of, um, some of... ..some of that you take to great detailed attention. And I'm particularly interested too in the way that you deal with the cultural metaphors in mm. the language as well. So many Western metaphors that relate to colour and time mm. and quickness. Um, mm. And um, do you want to speak a bit more about that intertextuality
0: yeah it it is an interesting aesthetic drive in Australian literature, like these competing impulses of the hostility of the bush, this perceived hostility of the wilderness that is expansive and and vast and empty, and that stands as a constant threat. To, um, to the human subject. And, of course, that's a complete misinterpretation of it because that's just really... Mm. And you see it in all of the colonial journals, you know, this complete misinterpretation of what the landscape is and, and is, is giving and, and excluding, you know. There's been a lot of work, um, you know, obviously the work that most people seem to know this in this sort of period is, is Bruce Pascoe, but there was, there's been a lot of work prior to, to that as well um, ...in individual communities about the actual, honest, truthful relationships... ...that Aboriginal people have had with the landscape as being um, very, um, you know, very participatory. The land doesn't just look like that. And mm. tracing in the colonial journals within a period of 50 years... ...what they were talking about is this beautiful estate. The, you know, the biggest estate on earth is mm. the title of Bill Gamage's yeah. book on this very quickly turned into that landscape of the perceived hostility. So it wasn't even their initial first reaction to the land, that it didn't want them. The the land told them that it didn't want them quite quickly. Um, And... That gave rise to a series of tropes of the frontier as, as of the hostility and the barrenness of the frontier, which then that 's where you see these these first placements of aboriginal bones and graves in the landscape that now you know we've never gotten over that motif that that metaphor of ghostliness and haunting, and kind of in in, in a sort of bizarre settler move to innocence to use um ...the work of Eve Tuck, Eve Tuck. and mm. um, K-Wayne Yang... Uh, ...and their, their kind of extension of, of um, uh, Patrick Wolfe's um, logic of elimination there. This way of imagining the white body as a victim of that landscape is a quite... ...honestly, it's like quite an impressive shift. And um, Nika Lehman, who's an interesting uh, young black film scholar... Uh, has, ...has worked on this around the idea of, of the settler slut aesthetic. So if there's any children, yeah. but also not, sorry. Um, language is important. We don't need to censor it. Um, this, this, the aesthetic of the settler slut, this, this kind of recuperation... ...of the beautiful colonial dresses... ...so that we're kind of recalling and reimagining ourselves back on that frontier... Um, which is, you know, a site of, of incredible violence. So I'm not entirely sure why that one took hold for so long and was so aggressive. Oh, yeah. But throughout the book, like I make... I think there's about ten different jokes about linen um, in in throughout the book. White and linen. White, white linen, linen, you know. And uh, Alison Whittaker, who's an incredible Gomorrah poet, wrote this beautiful poem, Many Girls White Linen, that really just stuck... ...stuck out in my head constantly yeah. as I was writing this... ...as I was putting this book together. This constant kind of like literary and then later in film... Um, this, ...this drive to just really hit home these key images... ...and symbols and metaphors of Australian literature... ...which were just about the beautiful, thin, white woman... Um, ...just reclining somewhere in a, in a gorgeous linen gown in the bush... And, to see and then getting lost and then getting yeah. lost and somehow the land is at fault here <laughs> um, and i remember throughout you know the bushfires seeing obviously we we're all like looking at a lot of what was going on on our phones because we're all glued to our phones now in terms of needing to find out what's happening and it's 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 necessary but it produces this bizarre you know um repetition and recirculation of images completely divorced from their context, which is how people do offensive things without even knowing it on the internet but this um this this uh, luxury Australian clothing designer women's clothing designer did a photo shoot. ...in just this absolutely, completely fire-devastated bush... Mm. ...of these beautiful white linen gowns... ...you know, a la Picnic at Hanging Rock. Mm. And at one point she was like leaning against a fire truck and... And I just sort of thought, you're never going to know like how violent this is. You're never going to realise. Or even think about or it. Or even think, think about it, because about they don't it, have to think in terms mm. of image and they don't have to think in terms of the damage of an image. And, and you know, we do. We it's inescapable because... Well,
1: arguably, too, a lot of Aboriginal history has been swallowed up by that mm. white woman image. There's the Picnic at Hanging Rock women. But there's also, like... Um, I've written a bit about it. Larissa Berendt's written beautifully about what about Eliza Fraser?
0: Mm. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and Fiona Foley, mm. bujula artist Fiona Foley talks about... ..yeah, this is the woman that swallowed a lot of Bujala history. Yeah. And her interesting work's called Eliza's Rat Trap.
0: Mm.
1: Um, yeah, make a fascinating graphic statement... ..about the entrapment of First Nations people in... Um, not just in the settler books, yes, sure, but in the settler imagination is a most dangerous place to be entrapped, isn't it? Mm. Um, mm. But there's also much to be learned, I think, from from haunting, um, yeah. hauntings, mm. from uh, you know, in terms of um, what we've learnt about hauntings, and mm. um, ...different forms of life. And I was always actually told to to uh, listen to ghosts mm. and spirits... ...and that only white fellas think that the dead can't speak. Mm. Mm. And, and I think in a lot of ways I'm not the only First Nations person... ...who was in some way or other was raised to think those things. Did you no, want to take that up? Yeah. yeah,
0: I mean absolutely. Like the the irony of that kind of psychic drive into the Australian Gothic tradition of constantly casting Aboriginal people as ghosts is like, well, of course our spirits are still here. You're just misinterpreting it. Like you're you're taking the erasure of living Aboriginal bodies, you know, as an opportunity to cast us as these completely non-agential ghosts. But our ghosts are and our spirits are agential. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I have to be careful throughout the book about how I talk about that, I did attempt to as much as possible write in such a way that it would be understood by an Aboriginal reader who is informed of their own, you know, at least some aspect of their own traditions, but not in such a way that was um, sharing information that is not my right to share or particularly interest to share, actually. I don't... I don't think we need to put a microscope on on a lot of aspects of our culture, um, but the kind of the, the the melancholic aspect of Australian literature has been quite extensively written on, but usually for as a charting of this kind of. Um, settler colonial despair again linking to the land not wanting that etc like marcus clark wrote you know the weird melancholia of the australian land and the literature that surrounds it but to me that's just such an ironic overemphasis because like that, it's it's absolutely not the relationship that we have with haunting and ghostliness no. like you know you get you scared a little bit when you're a kid when you start yeah. to realize some stuff you're in of, course. Awe of such things yeah but you learn very quickly and you live with that knowledge i think from an incredibly young age that you are always being watched that certain yes. things will make you more visible and therefore more accountable but that being watched and being seen through times is and not through terrible, places is a good thing. It's yeah. a good thing. It's it's it makes us more responsible to the land, and it's one of the ways that we are able to, um, you know, live our life in better responsibility, better better care for it because it knows us and has seen us since before we even actually, you know, came to be born on this on this place. So I did try to write about that in such a way that. You know, an Aboriginal reader might feel understood or perceived when the whole bulk of ghostliness is just such an unfamiliar, uncanny, and um, you know, usually unpleasant thing in Australian literature and very narrow Western interpretation
1: mm. of a ghost as well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I did. I, yeah, I. I also noted that your work um, can't just be ca- categorized as protest poetry. and that's a bit of a tired reductionist kind of descriptor for um, First Nations poetry because um, it denies it a lot of the literary merit. Yes, there's protests there, but it's not simply protest poetry. Um, ...that move kind of fails to acknowledge our deep entanglement as settler Mm. writers... ...as, uh, sorry, First Nations writers with settler literary traditions. Mm. And our unique ability to turn the master's tools back at the master. And I think this is one of the really valuable things that your work really puts out there... ...that (coughs) is that, you know, we can make the introduced language our own at the same time... As mounting a substantial and sophisticated ri- critique of the invaders that forced their language upon us in the first place. Mm. In other words, I think you know settlers need to accept that a lot of us are better at their language than we are, than they are. Uh, you? I I, I agree that? with
0: like that's Ellen Ellen um Van Nierven in throat. No, actually, no. This is in comfort food. ...wrote, I don't speak my language but I can write yours and I write it well. And I've always just loved... I've just always loved the implicit threat of that line. Um, It just has struck me that it's not something that I think that is... ...you know, we're not running around overemphasising that. Or people who are kind of like, you know, really seeing writing as, uh, as a craft... ...and as a part of a broader project and an extension... ...or a transformation of our inscriptive technologies you know thinking of um annie jennifer martinello's work on Mm. on that as well and she's an incredible incredible writer who doesn't artist and artist yes she's more known as an artist actually i think but um she doesn't go running around you know and and she should she absolutely should celebrate her work but it's just some of these great thinkers who never get the platform and the stage to really you know have the influence and the creative energy of their work recognized for all of its its it's really beautiful and powerful implications but i was think a lot about the way that she wrote about inscription and yeah. the the kind of the role of an aboriginal writer now as continuing continuing tradition um, with whatever technology and whatever tool we have available at, just, yeah. Yeah, at
1: our disposal yeah, mm. Aldi Jenny Martiniello and Arenta, writer and artist, currently residing in Canberra. And you should check out her woven glass. That's it's stunning. Te- yeah, and it's a text mm. um, in itself. Mm. Um, Drop Bear's also really rich in um, intertextuality um, with um, black storytelling, of course, as well. And I was wondering if you'd like to talk in, talk a bit about that and lead us into um, a conversation about the current black writing landscape. That's B-L-A-K, black. Mm. Mm.
0: Yeah, after Destiny Deacon's work on kind of, yeah, you know, Aboriginality and blackness, which I love and I love her work on that and I f- constantly find myself equally frustrated about the necessity of us Constantly having to claw back language that we've known and that we've used for a long time from these broader kind of global um, essentialization, uh, essentialisms of of um, racial, cultural, and political language. Um, so the work of the work of making English do what we need it to do is ongoing. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, apart from like Annie, Jenny, like there's some incredible writers out there who are, you know, many of whom are, are known and are celebrated quite publicly. Alexis Wright, for example, is just one of the yeah. most astounding. Like I don't think we'll ever know what to do with just how extraordinary and excellent her writing is. I'm always amazed by it. And she stands as like a really huge inspiration for the capacity and power of really... Um, just just really unrestrained language you know language that is lyrical that is not bound by tense in a way that would imply that it is bound by euro-western ideas of time, time. and mm. i think she gets she she definitely made things possible for me in, a, ...in in in my writing in a way that, like, would not... ...absolutely would not have been possible. And the thing about her is that, like, we don't need another Alexis Wright... ...because she is so rich and we can, like... ...we can sit with her writing in such a tender way. Um, so I, I, I really try not to be derivative of her like that's that's one of my that's one of the constant mm. things that I have to pull myself back in to be like okay you just sound like you're ripping off Alexis right here Evelyn so pull it back no you don't <laughs> no no but um you know I I drop bear is possible because not simply because of the current landscape you know like incredible authors like Munanjali Yogamba poet um Ellen Van Nierven, uh Gomor- already mentioned Gomorra po- poet um awesome. Alison Whittaker um uh um Natalie Harkin is Narunga, right? Yeah, yeah. and she's Narunga poet. Naranga poet and um academic and artist and her stuff on blood memory is and the archive the is is really, really astounding. But it is also important to recognize that none of the poets that I was able to kind of learn from in terms of that contemporary space came out of nowhere. And the thing that is that as i kind of progressed a bit more in my own research that i realized is that we don't have we don't have the archives of the predominantly women who have made the publishing landscape what it is for black writers over the last like 20 and 30 years particularly they were like absolutely breaking their backs to set up opportunities and to create support structures for you know networks and workshops and you know professional development skills programs um you know the 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 kind of person that I think of most explicitly at this is Aunty Kerry Reid Gilbert they were out there doing decades and decades of work putting together anthologies and they never got access to the opportunities that they made for um, no. an emerging generation. And so it's sometimes hard for me to piece those things together. I've then gone back and found archival copies or like out of print, you know, I only found out the other day that there is a poetry book of yours that I need to find that was like in you that you wrote in like the nineties or something like that. That um, I I can't early two thousands. Early two thousands. It's I I, I have no sense of time and time. I want to read it. and this is But sometimes I find this stuff, I find these anthologies that have been out of print for decades and I read poems and I'm like, oh, my God, I can trace the responses to you in things that I've read now. I can now go like, oh, wow, there is just this intergenerationality of black poets speaking back to what yeah. came alongside them or before them. And the way that we remember that... An archive that is so inconsistent that sometimes I worry that we're reinventing the wheel. And you know, like as I was writing Drop Bear and, and people were asking me about it, and then in the earliest stages of it coming out, people were like, Oh, this is so new. And I'm like, I don't think that it's new. And even if even if I, you know, hadn't read anything like this, I really wouldn't be surprised if there weren't other works by predominantly by black women. Doing similar projects that I never actually managed to find, and this constant overemphasis on who is new and fresh and young, and then it's usually then compounding those those forms of marginalisation. So it'll be like, uh, you know, people always wanting to. Um, Talk further and further about like okay, well, like you've got to be um, the the, and I am not I this I don't want to be problematic as I say this, but like I've had a lot of people ask me am I queer, not because they think that I give off expri- like incredibly lesbian vibes, because I do and I'm fine with that, I know my aesthetic, but because they want to add another marginalisation to my identity so they get extra token points and it's a really corrupt thing and it's leading to a lot of inconsistency in our own writing communities, yep. not just in First Nations contexts, but this over-commercialisation ...of every aspect of our experiences and identities... ...that then needs to be converted into a publishing outcome... ...when it's actually like, no, sometimes we're still just processing... Where well, sometimes we're still processing our lived experiences. I'm concerned about what's happening on this constant need for a new landscape... ...as we get further and further away from the stories that were never properly recorded... ...and we have them in oral memory... You know, that 30 years of black women, incredible black women working in the publishing industry to create opportunities that people like me can access now, that's not gone. It's remembered. It just hasn't been recorded and respected and honoured properly. And that's a massive concern for me about particularly as we now see this kind of like growing culture of black black criticism and black critique, you know, we've had decades of Aboriginal people only being able to be creative producers, right, in the same way that we're only allowed to do, like, dot paintings in the desert, but we're not allowed to do contemporary art that tells you to bugger off, you know. Those those kinds of dynamics that are... They present themselves... As really supportive and really encouraging and wanting to always be about setting up new opportunities, but are actually often not as often enough about getting people when they're young, getting people before they know how to be accountable to everybody, and getting these narratives of black excellence, which are really actually honestly mostly about asserting the permissible boundaries of what we as historically and constantly, continuously marginalized peoples are allowed to speak and say about ourselves. ...and about Australia and, you know, like as a young person entering into that space... ...I said yes to things I shouldn't have said yes to before I knew what to do about it. And like, you know, the, the thing that I am proudest about with DropBear... ...is just that I got to it when I had was old when, enough. Yeah. When I was old enough to do it and before I had succumbed to some of those opportunities... ...and the tunnelling of black talent... Into you know into some really upsetting and harmful directions harmful for directions. us now. Yeah, you mentioned a few things there, like um,
1: yeah, celebrity colonialism and the um, commodification of black writers, and loaded up with lots of Western stereotypes, like the young and edgy one. Um, people who say that don't know Arnie Alexis mm. or Arnie Jenny. Mm. Because that's edgy. Um, And um, I think you can take credit for a groundbreaking work... ...but you have spoken very well to a lot of the ignorance of the public... ...around general reading public, Mm. around the black archive... Mm. ...because of the celebrity colonialism... ...and focus on new and Mm. turn it over and new and turn Mm. it over. Mm. And that really... um, ...also leaves a damaging legacy and plays into the greater national psychic of chronic amnesia. Mm. Um, uh, You mentioned the deadly Gamorae critic Alison um, Whittaker and writer... ...who mentioned that, yeah, our um, creative scene is flourishing... ...but there is, you know, a bit of a lack of culturally grounded and rigorous critique
0: to engage... With mm. our works, and I think the emphasis there is culturally grounded. Like I, I really have so much love and respect for mob who are like you know, really like constantly reading widely and constantly making sure that they are form, informed and speaking to the current you know literary landscape. All of the, all of that stuff's great, and the political we see this in politics. We see it; all, yeah. it's all fine, but there is this way that blackness is always configured as speaking for blackness and if you are allowing yourself to be positioned in such a role that you are through your writing whether that be critique that be creative whether that be speeches whatever it is if you are being positioned as a spokesperson for your community you need to know what your community says and you need to be in you need mm. to be aware also of the history of that and so i'm very careful not to be speaking out of my own turn and I think that that is a more important skill that we need to be emphasising to our young writers because they're getting red now, mm. you know. And that, that, is a, that is something that comes with responsibility of ensuring that if you are speaking for culture, it is grounded in culture because it, you will pay the price and it will not be the people who set you up to fail who pay the price. It will be you and your community that yeah. pay the price.
1: And healthy writing cultures need... ...healthy writing critique as Mm -hmm. well, alongside the creative works. So, yeah, good point. Um, I'd just like to ask, because I'd like to also leave a bit of time for a QA and a ...if you're okay with that, Mm -hmm. Evelyn. Um, But, yeah, uh, would you like to talk a bit... ...because it comes out very strongly in your book... ...and um, we are um, staring down the barrel at a federal election... You talk a lot about land care, um, climate themes in this book, um, climate priorities and poetic strategies. Mm -hmm. So, would you like to speak to that? And what changes might you like to see? I mean, that's a huge question, but Mm. maybe you can just give us some of them.
0: Yeah. Well... um it's no avoiding the fact that this book was written during certain parts of this book was written during um the bushfire season of 2019 mm-hmm. in 2020 and actually janine and i were in the uk for a section of that we'd gone um oh, we they we There on invasion day and some some guy in a in a weird hat, tried to tell you to get off of the grass because you just wanted to have a look at the f- at the flowers, and he was like, "Get off the grass!" The Cambridge grass, the Cambridge sacred Cambridge Cambridge grass, yeah. um, and, and it was and Invasion Day, which was it ironic. was Invasion yeah. Day. So, of course, you told him to fuck off, and I love that moment; it's enshrined in the book forever. Um, but you know, we were there, and the way that. ...it was so bizarre seeing what was happening at home from the other side of the world... ...and really from the centre of Mm -hmm. empire. And, you know, it really kind of uh, made explicit this context of like... ...or the need to shine a light, to shine a very bright light... ...on the responsibility of every profession and every industry... ...to constantly be addressing the very real scenario that we are in right now of climate change... And even if it is not affecting us directly, it is affecting our neighbours. It is infecting. Is it affecting, um, you know, indigenous communities very, very close to here? You know, like the devastation that's already happened to the Marshall Islands, to Tuvalu, to India. You know, these are our broader families, and it's really devastating to watch the way that we are kind of all just. ...carrying on and not panicking as if we don't have... ...as if we have more time. Or the member for ku makes jokes about the um,
1: waters lapping at the Solomon yeah. Islands. Yeah.
0: And, and to emphasise that, the profound disrespect of that given the cultural protocols... Of um, you know of of um, welcoming and of respect and just the, the 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 how many chances we have been given to be mm-hmm. better allies to the Pacific that our government has just absolutely thrown in the face and that's something that you know we are coming up to an election and obviously this is some you know. This is a really charged matter and I think we're all safe in saying that, you know, even if we're on the left side of things, we're, we're, you know, not even if we are – I don't think anybody's making any second guesses about where I am. I don't know. I'm trying to be open-minded about who might be in the room. Um, You know, like there isn't a political party that has a satisfying policy for what I think is necessary um you know like we that's just the reality and we can vote we can vote for our interests and needs in that and we should be doing that because any change is you know a decent enough change to get us started but the work is extensive it's expensive and the record ongoing and ongoing and the record of resistance to that is the, the record of awareness of the damage of climate change is just so so much longer than um, than we might think about it as being. So, I think this book could not have been written without some kind of testimony about yeah. what's happening. Mm. You can't you can't write anything without centering climate change and centering the ongoing devastation to communities through climate change. And I would have been embarrassed by this book if I hadn't acknowledged it. I think we all acknowledge it because it we
1: feel it. And a good point, how many opportunities has the Australian government had to be friends, to be allies with us and we yeah. live here? Yeah. Um, I think, are you all right to go to a QA and yeah. a as we're in the remaining kind of 12 to 13 minutes of the session? <laughs> thank <laughs> you. Down the front. I was going to say uh-huh. you've, you've really silenced.
0: <laughs> uh, thank you so much, first of all. Um, it has been incredible... D- Oh, sorry. It has been incredible just to sit here and listen to you both talk. Um, So please continue to do so if there are no more questions. Uh, But I would love to hear just your interpretation of how going forward um, in sort of every artistic landscape, not just in writing or poetry, Mm. but across the board, how you would like to see Indigenous Mm. and non-Indigenous artwork really, whether it's a collaborative thing or whether it is... How, yeah, how would you like to see the ecosystem of artwork with Indigenous and non-Indigenous writers in the future and in an mm. ideal world, I guess? That's a good question. Um, mm. So, you know, I reckon yes. as well you might want to have an answer to it. But definitely just in terms of, like, what I think of about first is that, like, I'm constantly struck about this idea that we need to... Uh, walk into contexts and communities and um, different spaces with the assumption that someone external to that knows, you know, knows answers better than that own that that community. Um, so you know, like I'm always struck by these national projects on you know targeted towards. XYZ issue or concern that are not actually starting on the ground and are not actually about going up to a community and saying, like, actually, what do you need? You know, so like, I think that one of the key things that we need to do about it, artistic integrity and strength and vibrancy in this country is we actually do need to look on a local level at what's already going on in, you know, in different communities and different spaces and ask about resourcing, not ask about, like, how can we build up, you know, XYZ. Programs. How can we um, encourage these this community to participate in this program? It's actually like, no, what do you need? Like, what do artists in your region need? Do they need just to have, like, a space at the local community hall and, and earn and some bickies or something like that, so people can get together and have a writing group. Do they need capacity and resourcing for a festival there because they really want to be connecting with the next town over because the next town over has some great storytellers, and yet yeah. they don't have the same resources and capacity of this town. These sorts of collaborations and possibilities have always been there, and, you know. And I, my parents are educators, and they know, you know, in public education, as, as Janine yeah, was as well, was. Yeah. and they know like you, this sort of top-down solution of constantly trying to create new projects without actually examining the resources that are already on the ground comes from this really wasteful logic and i think particularly in terms of climate change waste just needs to be completely eliminated from the way that we do things conceptually as well as materially and we need to be ensuring as much as possible that we are honoring the expertise in a context and in a community so i ..don't necessarily have any answers about how do we improve our artistic landscape. But I bet you that there are people out there who do, who just need a microphone, who just need some money, um, <laughs> yeah. who just need some support to be able to articulate that. Amberlyn
1: uh, Melina, writer said any ethical and responsible advocate seeks to make themselves redundant in the process. Mm. And I mm. think that's tremendous um, advice. Mm. Um so, Evelyn and I were once at a um, symposium in Sydney, an eco-poetics um, symposium, where a, this is an example. There is a lot of room for collaboration, but collaboration has been conflated with we are the experts. And I used to work in a school of history, and it you know, like particularly prevalent in some, some sort of areas. But we were at an eco-poetics um, symposium... ...and I think we've been invited to one too many things to collaborate... ...and then told how to do it, you know. It's like, don't invite me to a party and tell me what to wear, hey. (laughs) Um, And so, yeah. But at this symposium we were critical of some of the white um, eco-movement... ...and the collaboration around that in artistic spaces. And someone got quite frustrated and, you know, said to me quite loudly... ...well, what do you want us to do? Mm. Uh, I said you could try listening, Um, which they didn't like it very much. But don't underestimate the power of listening. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) We've got another question. Thank you. Or comment.
0: Or criticism if you feel involved. Or criticism or query.
1: Okay. Thank you.
0: Hi. Um, Maybe you don't want to do this, Evelyn, but because it is an election. ..in nine days um, and we need to put country front and centre... ..I was wondering if you'd consider reading one of your bushfire poems... ..maybe pyro, because I just think it would be a really good way... Um, to, ..for people to pay attention. Are you happy for me to do that? Oh, yeah. Oh, I okay. think you should read. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think you should read. I was going to ask you if you wanted to finish with the reading. But, yeah. All right. Thanks, Aviva. Thanks, Aviva. Thanks, um, Aviva. OK. I do like pyro. I wrote it in a completely devastated place, um, mm. but I like, I like it because it means I get to yell, um, which is always tricky with a microphone. Okay. Um, uh, so this one is called Pyro, and it was written in um, January of 2020, although that's fairly evident from the context. The solar panels that sunk us into debt have overheated, so this gasping air presses windows and drags bodies to the floor. Last week we had to fell the iron bark that has held kookaburras in watch above us, lest their feathers catch light from flaming leaves that fall from the air. Instagram promotes a sneak peek pre-collection of organic women's, organic cotton women's wear in which the thin white model leans dour against a fire truck in the thrice burnt char of a homeland. I stand prickle-rashed, learning how brown my skin can bake and beg my dog, who at three months of living is yet to know rain, to stop straining at the lead and just piss on this hot, hard earth. I read it will take ten years for flowering trees to again sustain working bees, for the aloe to grow seed for the glossy black cockatoo, My mother cries quietly and yokes wet rags across her neck. My father collects dry branches when arranging the yard into gradations of that which we are most willing to lose. My sister girl's phone is too hot for her to hold it to her face when I call to ask how many mattresses her family needs. A girl in America posts links to purchase her upcoming cli novel under headlines for the pyrocumulus. Scott Morrison sits sanguine in a wreath of frangipani. A video on Twitter plays the howls of a billion relations alight. Again, we are unheard as we speak, knowings we have carried to care for this place through reckoning. Again, again, we are told to be grateful for this gift as if the machine has fireproofed anything but itself. I wrote this poem at a desk covered in ash. Yeah. That is genuinely true. The window was broken at the apartment that, that me and my yeah. partner were living in and just the whole place is covered in ash. It was yeah. a dark time. Mm. Don't vote for Scott Morrison. <laughs> yeah.
1: Any other questions or comments? Uh, there's a hand there in the middle. Thanks.
0: Uh, first of all, thank you very much for this. It's been a very beautiful and educational experience. I was wondering, is there any significance to the layout of your poem Gather? Yes, there oh, I was is actually. Ask you to talk about that. Thank you so much for asking yeah, that, for that question. question. Um, so that's a great question to ask, just in terms of where Gather came from. Um, and Janine has been doing a lot of stuff on gathering the gatherers, um, and how that relates as an act of well, actually, do you want to explain kind of how you've narrated that stuff? I think you
1: could talk to the poem, but it, I have done a lot of work on gathering as um, a writing methodology and as a cult, you know as a continued cultural practice. And I actually, wrote an essay called "Gathering: in The Politics of Women's Ra- po- Aboriginal Women's Poetry," which talks about gathering as particularly as a women's practice mm-hmm. and one that hunting is a bit overrated. Um, because gathering is what sustains the tribe, what Mm. sustains people. And women gather small things and they metaphorically gather. Mm. They keep stories and the local knowledge and they have a role to play in naming people and transmitting um, culture, Um, which isn't to say that um, other members of the community don't but women have that particularly sustaining role and one that um, carries many, many small but essential things to keep um, culture alive. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here and neither would Mm. Evelyn. So, Mm -hmm. and, um, yeah, you could talk a bit to the poem. and
0: so for people who haven't had a look at the book, Gather is the opening poem. Um, It opens this first section, which is called Gather. Um, There are three sections, Mm. Gather, Spectra and Debris. Um, And the logic of this first section and particularly of the first poem is to be thinking about acknowledging and taking up and bringing together the things that are there and that are present in, um, you know, in my life, in my community, in my family um, because I think that obviously there's a lot of frustration and rage in the collection and I didn't want to begin at a point of ingratitude. So it was really key that the collection mm. opened with something that was about taking stock of what was there and available to me, um, uh, taking stock of kind of the resources that I felt opened up um, the, my capacity for the collection and just, um, you know, so there's a few there's a few logics about how I decided to lay it out. Mm. Um, the first is kind of almost as a flat lay, which is a bit of a weird idea for a page, to be perfectly honest, but, um, you know, a flat lay image where you have the camera that's just taken directly mm. above and you have things kind of displayed... Um, you know, displayed, like you've got a bird's eye view. So the way that you might, um, you know, put uh, put down your words after spending time thinking about how you've plucked them up and arranged them. And I know that sounds like such a bizarre thing to be thinking about for a kind of, you know, the act of writing, but there was an intentional... Visual thing—it's like tipping out the basket no, and seeing where, things, mm. seeing where things, seeing where things lie—and um, that was also attempting to echo um, something of the idea of an erasure poem, because so much of the book is intertextual and it is—it is just, you know, constantly talking about other texts and other ideas. So what I tried to do was instead of making visible the things I had erased. Um, the things that I'd excluded and blacked out. I, want, I wanted to place words in um, a sort of a pattern. Um, so if you like, look at it like that, falling leaves, falling blossoms or something like that, and then if you look at this side like that, that's the tree and things like that. I wanted to have shapes that sure. felt there and felt present as if there was something of country in that, even though what I was actually doing was cutting out and erasing a kind of a textual context. And, yes, I overthink a lot of these things, so I wouldn't necessarily say... No one's ever asked me that, so I've no, never been able to explain it. So thank you for it's asking It's a good that. question, and it's I just want question. to add to
1: that that there is a lot to be learned in this and other poems... ...here in and Drop Bear and in First Nations Poetry more broadly... ...about how you read space
0: mm. and mm.
1: silence... ...and what we're all doing with a bit of white space in our poems as mm. well.
0: Yeah, for sure.
1: Um, yeah, this is telling me that we've got like 16 seconds. <laughs> um, you <laughs> left Probably on the yes. clock. So, <laughs> um, look, um, I just want to mention that... Um, Copies of Drop Bear are available um, for purchase at the back of the room, thanks to um, Hill of Content Bookstore. Um, and Evelyn is uh, mm, happy, sort of happy <laughs> to. Um, no, Evelyn's happy to sign copies at the end. Um, and I would just like to um, say, Mandanguru... that's thank you in your for coming and being such an engaging audience and, in particular, would like to say thank you to
0: Evelyn. Thank you for coming, but also thank you immensely to Janine Bugawan and really beautiful yarn. This was Janine Lane in conversation with Evelyn Araluen. Winner of the 2022 Stella Prize on the Wheeler Centre podcast. This event took place on the 12th of May 2022 at the Wheeler Centre. You can find more from the Wheeler Centre by visiting wheelercentre.com.